We can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We've been in this uh, study in Thessalonians for 27 messages now. We're coming to the conclusion, but it's just taking a little longer because of all the details of the eschatology we're dealing with and everything, and we want to make sure everybody understands. So if you're visiting here today, I apologize because we're going to be picking up where we left off last week, and this is part three of a a message entitled, Understanding Who We Are in Christ. It's such an important thing that we understand who we are in Christ. If we don't understand who we are in Christ as Christians, boy, we're, we're really going to be beat up by this world in a big-time way. And so if you turn over in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, we're talking about the future. We're talking about future things, the future coming, really, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And... For those who haven't been here, there are two events ahead of us in this world. And the first one is the rapture of the church, the snatching away of all Christian believers from the face of the globe. That's discussed, and we studied through that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. We call it the rapture or the snatching away of the church. Uh, We're going to be taken off this world to meet the Lord in the air. And we'll be taken to heaven with the Lord who has prepared a place for us. Um, there will be a, resurrected, a resurrection of all the bodies of all believers who have died at this point, And they will come out of the graves, new glorified bodies to be joined in their spirits already in the presence with the Lord. And those who are still alive, maybe we will be, maybe we won't. We don't never know. <laughs> but if we are, we're going to be caught up. Our bodies will be... Uh, just glorified immediately and be taken up together with the Lord and we will forever be with the Lord. We will never be apart from him after that point in time. Um, when he comes back to earth for the, at the end of the tribulation, when he comes back to start his millennial reign here on earth for 2,000 years, we will come with him. So he won't leave us in heaven. He will bring us with him. And so it's a kind of a, a neat event. It's the most important, really, part of that whole event, the idea that we are caught up to be with him in the air, and we will never be apart from him, ever. We'll always be with the Lord. That's what the end of verse 17 says there. We will always be with the Lord. And so we've been looking at, at chapter 5, and we've been talking about the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is associated with judgment, it's associated with God's wrath. Um, it, it speaks of God's judgment in the Old Testament. It speaks of God's judgment in the New Testament. His judgment will be poured out on this earth for seven years. And um, we won't be here. There are some people that believe they, I guess they want to go through that. I don't know why. But um, as children of the light, as Paul tells us here in First Thessalonians chapter 5, we will not have any part of darkness. We will not have any part of, of God's wrath. We are protected in Christ from that event of God pouring out his wrath here on earth. And so when we talk about the day of the Lord, you don't have to go to bed and have nightmares about it because I honestly believe the scriptures teach us, and this text does clearly, 
as we'll see even today, as we close off up to chapter, or verse 11 here in chapter 5 of 1 Thess- Thessalonians, we will we'll see that he has not destined us for this. And so I want to just read verses 4 to 11. I'd ask if you'd stand in honor of God's word this morning. Since we sat for the last song, you can stand for the reading of God's word. <laughs> Give you a little break here. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4, uh, verse 4 to 11. He says to the believers there, he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Verse 6, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God, there it is, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Father, we thank you for these words. We ask you to give us wisdom as we go through the conclusion of this message today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Paul here is saying, basically, there's two kinds of people in the world, according to the Lord. Only two. No gray area in between. There's people who are in the light, and there are people who are in the darkness. There are people of darkness and people of daylight. There are people who are drunken, there are people who are sober. It's not a new theme in Scripture. This is, this is even found in the Old Testament. If you'll turn back with me, just turn back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Isaiah, chapter 9. I found this interesting because it really is the prophet Isaiah and he's prophesying about the coming Messiah. And it really shows us the attachment that he has here to the appearance of light. He is the light. Christ is the light in the darkness. And in verse 1 of Isaiah 9, it speaks of the land of Zebulun and the land of uh, Naphtali. And that's kind of on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee, uh, of, the, of the, the Gentiles there. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought it into contempt, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Then in verse 2, look at this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in In a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. See, this is a a direct prophecy, beloved, that the light is coming to the darkness. It's coming to the land specifically, it says, of Galilee. Well, what is this light? 
or better yet, who is this light? Well, look at verse 6. It tells us. We read this at Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's no gray area there. He doesn't say he may do this. No, he will do this. This is none other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, that Isaiah is prophesying about. He prophesies the Messiah is going to come to Galilee. The, the Messiah is going to be a light shining in the darkness. Turn over to the New Testament in Luke chapter 1. Long chapter. But look at verse 76. This is basically John the Baptist has received a message from heaven that he's going to be Zacharias is going to be a father along with Elizabeth, his wife, the mother of, of the prophet that's going to announce the arrival of this, this light, the Messiah. So um, here we see that he, Zacharias received this and, and he's going to have this, this child and this child, John the Baptist, is going to be the forerunner of Christ. Now look at verse 76 and this is what it it's dealing with here. Zechariah is really praising the Lord for what the Lord is going to do in giving him this son who's going to be the, the really the last prophet. Um, verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby, look at this, the sunrise shall visit from the Most High, verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zacharias, knowing the prophecy of Isaiah, I'm sure, he realizes that this light would come and identifies the light as the sunrise from on high as the Messiah, who will shine on those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, there's this wonderful promise fulfilled. It says in verse 12 of Matthew 4, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, Christ heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory, look at this, of Zebulun and Naphtali. Just like Isaiah said. Verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Just as the prophet Isaiah said, the light of the world would come and penetrate the darkness in Galilee. Look at verse 15. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, 
Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So you can see that God speaks in terms of the Messiah coming as light in the darkness. He not only does that, but as followers of Christ, we are called to be what? Light in the darkness. And so far in our study, we've looked at two of the points in our outline there, the contrast between light and darkness. We said that it's a promise, it's a position, and it's a practice. And we compared throughout the scriptures what is talked about when it's talked about darkness, and it's always associated with judgment. And Paul says, you have no place there. You have no place as a believer in a place of judgment because Christ took your judgment upon himself. So it's a position based upon our faith in Christ. It's a practice that we live out. And then last week we looked at the challenge to believers because of that contrast. First of all, the need for watchfulness. He says there in verse eight, let us, or verse six, let us not sleep and be sober. And then he repeats it in verse eight, be sober. And we talked about how important it is that we realize that we live in a day where the people who are in darkness need to hear the gospel more than ever. And God has left us here to fulfill that task, whether it's in India, whether it's in Thailand, whether it's in Honduras, through different missionaries we support, or here in the United States, or whether it's at the grocery store, or the gas station, or the community center, or the classroom, or your place of employment. People are in darkness, and they need to hear the blessed gospel. Well, why do we need this for watchfulness? Why do we need this? Well, first of all, we said because of the weakness of the flesh. And we, we looked at quickly Matthew 26, 41, where Jesus said, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is, in, is, is indeed willing, but the flesh is what? The flesh is weak. The weakness of the flesh. And that meant no strength whatsoever. If you're trying to live your Christian life in the flesh you're going to be sorely mistaken. This is the same term that was used of Lazarus when he was weak, he was sick, and he died. It's the same term that was used of Dorcas when she was sick and she died. So it's not a, it's not a good prognosis. It's not saying you just got a little, you know, runny nose. It's saying you're at the point of death. You have no strength in you whatsoever. The flesh is weak. And so because of that, we need to be watchful. But then secondly, because of the works of the devil. And this is kind of where we left off last week. We, we read 1 Peter 5.8, talking about the, the devil roaring around like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we've read that scripture. And I think the danger here is that we hear that and, well, yeah, the work of the devil's out there and stuff. But you know what, Pastor? I, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've been a Christian for 50 years. I don't think I need to worry about the devil. Are you kidding me? I mean, what are you thinking? I mean, we think somehow just because we get older age-wise, we, we get more spiritual. That doesn't happen automatically. I mean, I've been walking with the Lord now for f over 43 years since I was saved. I remember hearing about those old people who knew the Lord for so long and... <laughs> Now, I am one, but 
you know, I still struggle each day with issues in my spiritual walk. It's a struggle. We all have our own struggles to face. They may be different than they were years ago when I was a little younger. See, but the enemy knows how to mark you out. The enemy knows how to wipe you out, even as an older believer, as someone who's mature in the Lord. The enemy knows how to defeat you. He knows how to twist your mind and your thoughts. I think for older people, a lot of times he makes them think, well, you know what, you're not physically what you used to be. Physically or mentally, even emotionally. Why don't you just fold up and quit? Just stop. God can't use you. You're just an old person. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. Don't believe that. I've never been a big fan of retirement. People keep asking, are you going to retire? And I'm like, am I not making sense or something? Maybe, you know, if I'm up here drooling on myself and I'm just rambling, bring the hook out and get me out of here. But hopefully I can effectively communicate a little bit still. And I want to be used by the Lord until he comes or I go to be with him. I mean, what are you going to do for retirement? I mean, it sounds kind of tempting, what would I do? Go float around on a ship somewhere and see different countries, maybe, on the ocean. And I don't know. It'd probably be nice for about two weeks. And I'd lose my mind. But I'm not saying God can't move you on and, and use you in different ministries and stuff like that, even after you retire from one. I, I get that. But trust me, you never retire from the Christian walk. You never retire from Christian ministry. The point is, don't quit. Don't believe that lie. If you're still breathing, guess what? God has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. He's not through with you yet, no matter what your physical condition is. I mean, you could be a quadriplegic in a hospital bed somewhere. I, I visited an individual the last couple of weeks, you'd be praying for him. His name's Ray, and he has cerebral palsy. I think he said he's in his late 60s or 70, but he just went in for hip surgery this last Wednesday. And he's been in this hospital bed, in this care facility, he said, for almost two years. And he said, I'm used to being independent, even though i am got cerebral palsy. I mean, but my back is messed up, my hip's messed up, and I've been in this place. And they do the best they can, but nobody here speaks English. Most of them are Filipinos, so they speak very little English. And so he asked if he'd be willing to come visit him, and I've been visiting him. And he's just telling me, Pastor, all I can do is pray. That's all I can do. I'm stuck in this bed. I can't do anything. I mean, you can't even really even talk on the phone or anything. I said, well, you know what? You're probably doing the most important thing. Because <laughs> a lot of us out here are busy doing everything else but praying. 
And I think we need to spend a little more time on our knees, frankly. And just to just pray that, you know, he, he prayed and I haven't had a chance to follow up with him. But I'm going to see how he's doing. But before his surgery, he even asked me, he said, just pray I don't wake up. And, I mean, frankly, why not? I mean, he, he's going to be a lot better off in heaven than he is here. But I said, well, I, I can pray that, but I don't know what God's plan is. I did pray for one time somebody had cancer and asked the Lord to take him home. and Went to visit him the next day, and they weren't there. <laughs> they went home. So, you know what? God has a purpose and a plan. Just because you're not physically fit, or maybe your mental facility, faculties aren't the way they used to be when you were younger, maybe your body doesn't work the same way, no matter what your age, God is not through with you yet if you're still breathing. And that's the truth that we all have to live with all the time. Don't give up. Keep moving on. And so we talked about the weakness of the flesh. We also talked about the necessity of wearing spiritual armor in verse 8, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. That putting on the breastplate is like putting on a, a bulletproof vest. The point was, basically, don't try to handle the Christian life without spiritual armor, without the Word of God. Don't try to do it on your own. It's not going to work. You'll be very frustrated. I mean, there's times in our lives, even as believers, we need the breastplate of faith and love. And we need that helmet that gives us hope for salvation. Because I've, I've dealt with people, beloved, who've unfortunately lost their loved one, maybe their spouse or their child. And when a loved one dies... Your whole world is turned upside down. It seems like it's falling apart. And you begin to question, are you even there, God? Why did this happen to me? And I've seen where people just drop off the face of the earth. They drop out. Been faithful coming to church ever since then. And then their, their spouse drops dead one day, and boy, they, you don't see them in church anymore. They're hurting. They're filled with despair. They're filled with discouragement and depression. They don't talk to anyone. They don't fellowship with anyone. Because there's a huge hurt in their heart. A pain that they're dealing with they've never dealt with before. And a lot of times, even for the believer, the enemy takes advantage of that time. And he comes in like a storm. And they end up thinking, well, you know what? I have the right to be depressed. I have the right to feel this way. Excuse me? That's not what the Bible says. King David in Psalm 43, 5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. See, we never outgrow our need for total dependence upon the Lord. 
We're told in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord what? With all of our heart. Don't leave this to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will what? He will direct your paths. There's no age fixed to that. And so the challenge to believers, because of that contrast, now I want to look at the confidence that we have today. He tells us here in verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. We're going to be taken out of here before God's wrath visits this earth, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The confidence we have because we are children of the light. light. Verse 9, it starts off there in the ESV, for God. For God, hoti in the original language, it, it's really uh, a conjunction that, that means because of, because of this, I'm going to tell you the following. So he says, for God, because God has not destined us for wrath. Guess what? The first thing here is our appointment is not to wrath. We don't have an appointment with God's wrath as a believer. This is told to us throughout Scripture. This is a good place for an amen. amen. <laughs> I mean, translated literally, it says, because God has not appointed us to wrath. The whole motivation of this whole passage is rooted in the promise of God. And this confidence that we have because we are children of light. It's great to know that your appointment is not for wrath. God has not fixated a, a schedule down the road and said, oh, by the way, you've got to go through this first. No. Christ paid for all of our sins, past, present, future. Now, we may be, what, persecuted, Right? As believers, we're, we're, we may have to suffer a little bit. We may go through terrible trouble, as many Christians have. But we're not going to go through this coming day of God's wrath. It's not for the church age believer. That's very clear in all of Scripture. So our appointment is not to wrath. That's a confident statement. Secondly, our assurance is based on the work of salvation. He says there, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that we're not tested or pointed to wrath. But we are, we are appointed to obtain salvation through Christ, Jesus, who died for us. So whether we're awake or whether we're asleep, the goal is that we should live together with him. I mean, that's what our Christian life is all about, right? Is Jesus Christ living in us, through us, through the power of the Holy Spirit? That's why we're called Christians, little Christ. We're here on earth representing Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's a life of the Lord Jesus Christ that gave us eternal life. We didn't earn it. His perfect life and his death is what purchased my righteousness, 
your righteousness. It was his death that he paid for the forgiveness of our sin, which results in joy and peace. And all that results by living our lives with him who died for us. Paul says in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is your life appears. Is Christ your life? Or is Christ just something you add to your life? There's a big difference. A big difference. Paul says when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Praise the Lord, our assurance is not based on our work, our good deeds, our religion, some system of of works that somebody's contrived. If you do this, well, then God will like you more, or, or then he'll forgive you. If you just give more money to the church, or you just come to church more often, or you take communion, or you get baptized, or you, you know, the list is endless, folks. Thank God it doesn't reside on any of that. It doesn't rely on any of those works. It's based upon the work of Christ because we obtain salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you're trusting in your own goodness, give it up. I mean, I'm not trying to be rude, but guess what? You don't have any goodness. There's nothing good in you, the Bible says. There's none good. There's there's none that does right. There's none righteous. All, all, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means you. That means me. That means the Pope. That means the priest. It means the pastor. It means the elder. It means everybody. That's why we need a Savior. Because we're all in the same pool drowning in the pool of sin. And there was only one who didn't enter into the pool of sin. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life here on earth. You mean he never sinned? Nope, not once. Because he was God. And if you don't believe that, then don't believe the Bible. Just give up and go follow something else. Because the Bible says that Christ was without sin. Even though he was tempted in every way, even as we are, he was yet without sin. He didn't give in to the temptation. So that's our challenge The confidence that we have, we have because we are in Christ. We are children of light. The confidence we have is because of the appointment not to wrath and the assurance that it's based on his work, not ours. The last point here is that the comfort we should have because we are children of light. Why would would this be a comforting passage if you were still going to go through the tribulation and be exposed to God's wrath here on earth? It just doesn't make any sense. And so he says in verse 11 there, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. That word therefore, deo, in the the original language, in the Greek language, it basically means on account of this or because of what I've just said. Well, what did he just say? God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Then because of this fact, therefore comfort yourselves together. Edify one another. 
Those are the two things. We mentioned last week two things that are very comforting to us are the fact that we are raptured out of here, right? We're not here for the wrath of God. And we, the promise of the rescue from the, the coming wrath. He comes and takes us away. Even though the wrath is here on earth, he rescues us from that. And so he gives us two things here. He says, first of all, we should constantly encourage one another, the text says, or comfort, some translations say, comfort one another. Parakaleo in the original language, this is not speaking of evangelism here. It's talking about what happens within the body of Christ. This is kind of thrown in there with all the one another's of Scripture. It's talking about how we relate to one another in Christ, in the church. And he says here two things that we should be doing all the time, by the way. This isn't a one-time thing. Oh, I encouraged, I encouraged Ken so I don't have to ever do it again. No. It means you constantly are a source of encouragement. Number one, we should be encouraging one another. Parakaleo means to call alongside, to comfort, to encourage, to lift the spirit of, to lift the heart of someone. Turn over to Hebrews, a couple pages to your right there in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Because he uses the same word, the writer of Hebrews. Who wrote Hebrews? I don't know. You figure it out, let me know, but I don't know. <laughs> But we should be constantly encouraging one another. Well, what do we encourage them with? We, we want to encourage other brothers and sisters. Say, you know what? The Lord is our strength, right? We want to remind other believers that they, they're not to quit. They're not to give up. You don't toss in the towel. Hey, I'll be here with you. I'll be here to help you along the way if possible. Encouraging one another, and this is what Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, it speaks of. He says, and let us, what? Consider how to stir up one another. You know what that word means? Agitate. It's like God throws us all in a washing machine and hits the start button. And we're just in there rocking and rolling, you know. That's really what it means. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We've heard a lot about this verse the last couple of years with COVID and everything. Not neglecting to meet together. Not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some. And unfortunately, it does become a habit when you don't meet together as the body of Christ. It becomes a habit. If you don't believe, well, I wouldn't tell you to do this, but miss a couple Sundays. And you'll, you'll find out real quick, wow, you know, I miss two you know, now, then you can start feeling weird about even going back to church because then, you know, you know, you're going to, where have you been? And, and so then you stay away another Sunday and it, it becomes a habit. It's unfortunate, but there, there are churches still not meeting together today. Not neglecting to meet together, he says, as is the habit of some, but what? But encouraging one another. Same word. Same word, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, drawing near. The point here is the closer we get to these prophetic events we're talking about, the closer we get to the rapture, we don't know when the, the, 
the rapture is going to happen. It's a signless event. It could happen now. And if you know Jesus Christ, you'd be taken out of here. If you don't, you'll be sitting here with a couple people. And you'll be looking at each other going, where did everybody go? Where, where, where were these clothes here? You know, they, they just vanished. You don't want to be in that position. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. But the closer we get to these prophetic events, whether it's the rapture or the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, the more, the Bible says, you and I are to be encouraging one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to come alongside of one another. Now, I have a confession to make. So many times, I'm guilty of this, and I'm, I'm sure you are to some degree too, James 3.10 says this, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be. I don't know about you. Talk to my wife. She understands. <laughs> it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. We should be speaking words of encouragement. I mean, it's so easy. I mean, I I'm a critical person anyway. I'm critical of everything. Went for a drive the other day, and she, you know, your mom says, do you know any other words besides idiot? I mean, what? Because <laughs> that's what was coming out of my mouth. What an idiot. Look at this guy. Wait, he's driving. Oh, look at that idiot. You know. And I thought, wow, okay. Ching. Yeah, she gets a point. Because <laughs> it was true. It's easy to tear down. It's easy to criticize other people. That just comes naturally to some of us. And we need the encouragement from God not to do that. Uh, it may shock some of you, but there's no spiritual gift. I've looked. There's no spiritual gift called criticism. I mean, I wish there was because I would have, have it tenfold. But it's not there. It's not in the list. God called us to be humble. He didn't call me to make you humble or to make you feel humble. That's God's job. But it's so easy just to be critical. And sometimes we even do it with jest, right? Give a cutting remark. Oh, you know, oh, come on, I was just kidding. Well, the Bible tells us we need to clean our speech up. We shouldn't be doing that. Whether it's in our families, our marriages, our lives together as the body of Christ, it's, it's so much better. We'll reap so many more blessings from God if we, if we just keep encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. The second thing here is we should constantly edify one another. Verse 11 that's what that word, those words mean, build one another up. It's the word edify, to build one another up. It's the opposite, really, of tearing somebody down. Ephesians 4.16 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, listen, makes the body grow 
so that it builds itself up in what? Love. In love. That's what we're called to do. That word edify, oikos is part of the word. It's basically made up of two words. That's house in Greek. And so it's kind of like saying building a house. I mean, I've heard people tell other people, you know what, you're good for nothing. I thought, whoa, I wouldn't even say that. (laughs) Because we're all good for something. We're all good for something. We can get so proud that we lose sight of really what the Bible teaches. Sometimes, you know, you hear, and we say it kind of in jest, you know, Well, if God could use Balaam's donkey, he can use you. (laughs) Kind of a little reverse humor, and that's true. I mean, we need to hear that, some of us. Don't ever forget, though, he did use Balaam's donkey. (laughs) And he can use you. See, that's the positive side of that. You look at some of the people God used throughout Scripture, it's amazing to me. They live much worse lives than I ever would even dream of living. And yet God used them in incredible ways. He can use you. He will use you to edify, to build one another up if we just stop tearing one another down. In 1 Corinthians 8, 1 tells us what builds up. It's love that edifies. It's love that builds up. That verse says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, we have a lot of people in the churches today that are filled with knowledge. They can quote verses left and right and know all about theology and doctrine. And that's all they got. They got knowledge. They have no love at all. Ephesians 4.16 said that when the body grows together, it grows up in the sphere of love. We need the love of God. There's an American professor named Archibald Alexander, and he wrote a thing, a little paper, and it summed up the marks of a Christian. And he said a Christian can be summarized in three Three distinct marks. A true Christian. He said, first of all, the first one is love. The first one is love. Love for the Lord. Love for his word. Love for his people, the church. And love for the lost. When I think of those four things that we should have love for, the Lord, his word, people, his people, and the lost. You know, I I know a lot of believers that say, ah, I don't want to go to church. I've got to deal with all those people. (laughs) They don't need love for the church. Love for the lost. Hunker down in our, our homes and spray Clorox everywhere so the the sin of the world won't infest us at all. No, God wants us to go out there. 
God wants us to share the word of God, the truth, the gospel with those who've yet to hear. That's what will mark true believers, a love for the Lord, his word, love for his people, a love for the lost. I mean, even Jesus himself said, by their what? Love, you'll know that they're my disciples. He didn't say by their holy living. He didn't say by their theology or by this or that. No, he said by their love, you'll know that they're my disciples. So first of all, the love of God. Secondly, he went on and he said, as you can know a true believer, not just by their love, but also by their humility. By their humility. Coming with that love is an eagerness to humble themselves before a holy God. And even to humble themselves before each other. See, a lot of times we get the first part right, but then our heart's filled with pride before each other. You know, we have to have that desire to obey, to hear the truth, to live the truth, to serve each other the way Christ did in his humility. Not expecting a pat on the head or something in return. So love, humility, and the, the last thing is, he said they will be marked by holiness. They will be marked by holiness. Their lives will be characterized by righteous thoughts, by righteous words, and by righteous deeds. We're not going to be marked by perfect love or perfect humility or even perfect holiness. It's kind of a redundant term, but We can't be perfect this side of glory. But we can definitely see the, the, the trajectory of our life going in that direction, hopefully, as a true believer. That we will love the Lord. We will humble ourselves willingly. We will seek holiness. And with all three of those things, we, we realize that with each one, we have to do it more and more and more. We never arrive. We never are completely holy, this side of glory. We're never completely humble. It's like when you ask somebody how, how their Christian walk doing. And they say, wow, you know, God has really taught me how to be humble. It's like, really? Oh, yeah, I've arrived at humbleness. Okay, I don't think so. I don't think so. See, we seek these things, and we seek it more and more as the day draws near. But see, these things shouldn't be alienated from us as believers. This isn't something where we're trying to conjure up within ourselves, I, I just need to get that love for the Lord or that humility or, or that, that holiness. That's your nature as a believer in Christ. That's just what naturally comes out of you. You don't have to work up some love for the Lord and love for his word and, and a, a love for the church or a love for the lost. It's your nature. If you're a true believer, you're concerned for the lost. You love the church. You love his word and you love the Lord. 
We don't have to beat ourselves up every other day and expect these things to come out of our you know, flesh somehow. That's our nature in Christ if we are a true believer. The problem is we have to focus on things that are getting in the way of our true nature. See, if you're trying to fight all this stuff up and bring all this stuff up, conjure it up amongst themselves, then they're not spiritually natural. Which means you're not a believer. There's a lot of believers, professing believers in the church today that say they're a Christian and they're living some frustrated life because they realize they can't do what is expected in the Bible of them and so they get frustrated. Well, maybe they need to go back and examine whether or not they're truly in Christ. Just because they raised a hand in a service when they were three or threw a stick in the fire. Or... That doesn't make you a Christian. Following Christ is, is a matter of giving up everything, everything. All your desires, all your wants. You're laying them at the cross. All your aspirations, to the extent that you're willing to give up your own life, if need be. That's what Christ said. If you're going to follow me, then what? Deny yourself. I don't think a three-year-old knows how to deny themselves, frankly. If you want a good book on child evangelism, read Justin Peters' book on the subject matter. Excellent book. And he talks about how the gospel message is very much an adult message. It's not really a ch children's message. And yet we've been pounded, it's been pounded in our heads. Oh, you know, don't suffer the little children to come to Jesus. I'm not saying a little child can't come to Christ. I would never say a little child couldn't be saved. But that's not the norm. That's not the norm for true believers. What you have to do is fight against the things that, that mitigate against these new desires and impulses that we have as believers to love the Lord more and love his word. What comes into, into our lives that kind of blocks that, that stops that? That's the problem. We have to fight against that. And you say, well, why would I even bother fighting? We'll turn over to 2 Peter. We'll close with this. 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. All the way near the back of your Bible right before 1 John. 2 Peter chapter 1. He gives us the answer. Why, why do we have to fight as believers in this world against all this stuff? Well, 1 Peter 1.4 says this. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the, there it is, divine nature. If you're born again, you have a divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of its sinful desires. Peter's saying, you know what? We are new creatures in Christ, we have a new nature. 
We have escaped the, the corruption that's in this world by lust. We're delivered out of the darkness, the Bible says, into light. And then he says in verse 5, for this very reason. Look at what he says. Because you've already been delivered out of the darkness into light, for this reason, you have a new nature, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and with and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness look at this with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love work hard he's saying so these virtues can can triumph over the temptation that comes against us in life. And you may say, well, why do I want to do that? Well, he says in verse 8, for if these qualities are yours, the ones he just mentioned, and notice he says, if they're yours and they're what? Increasing. See, there's no, there's no place for stagnant Christians. There's no place at all. You're always abounding. You're always growing in Christ. You may be growing fast, you may be growing slow, but you better be growing. Because guess what? If you're not growing, you're dead. You're not in Christ. You've been deceived. You need to repent. You need to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, save my wretched soul. He says, for this reason, if these, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, Look at what it says. They keep you from being what? Ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if you're pursuing love, if you're pursuing humility, if you're pursuing holiness, if you're pursuing those elements of, of godliness, guess what? The Bible says you're going to be useful. doesn't matter what age you are. The Bible says you will be fruitful because you have the true knowledge of the Lord. I think the biggest disappointment in our lives ought to be when we're not useful. When we're not fruitful. Especially to the one who redeemed us. And we have a whole culture today that's it's okay. To not be useful. To be unfruitful. To have a horrible work ethic. To not even want to work hard. Because everything's given to them. We need to be careful with that. So if you apply all diligence in the, the direction of righteousness... You'll be useful, you'll be fruitful. You won't be useless and unfruitful. That's the positive side of what Peter's saying. Look at what he's saying here in verse 9 because he turns negative. <laughs> we'll close with this. He says in verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities, look, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
See, if, if these things are not characteristic in your life, guess what? You're not going to enjoy the security of your salvation. You're, gonna, you're not going to have that kind of security in your Christian walk. You're going to be going to bed every night, I don't know if I'm a believer or not. Maybe I need to get saved again. Maybe I need to pray again. Maybe I need to do this. You won't have the confidence that you're a Christian. What are you going to do? You're going to end up living in fear. You'll live in anxiety. You'll live in doubt. All of which should not be anywhere near a believer's life. And frankly, the more you know about the day that's coming, the coming day of the Lord, the horrific judgment, the fires of eternal hell, the more fearful you will be. And so verse 10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Confirm it. Make sure of it. He says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Wow. What a promise that is. See, this isn't something we do to try to convince God. God's the one who elected us. He knows whether we're saved or not. But we're the ones that get fraternizing with the world. We get all mixed up in all this other stuff. We listen to all this garbage. And pretty soon we forget who we are in Christ. And the enemy knows that, and pretty soon we're paralyzed. We're not useful to anybody because we're in our bedroom, cowering in fear, contemplating whether or not we're even a believer because we don't see these qualities in our life. He definitely knows whether you're saved or not. You're not giving God the information. It's kind of like when we have a prayer meeting. You know, sometimes I think people think in prayer meetings they're informing God about something. It's so irritating to me. And they just go on and on about all these details of stuff. It's like God already knows this. You don't need to regurgitate all this stuff before God. He knows what's good. You don't even have to open your mouth in a prayer meeting. You can contemplate it in your heart. Remember when I was in Bible college, and brand new believer in the dormitory, and first time I ever in a group devotion, and RA was sitting next to me and did his little devotion thing, and at the end, he said, okay, well, we're going to go around and we'll pray. And he prayed. And I guess we're going around this way. And I prayed. I didn't say anything, but I prayed. I mean, I just came out of the Catholic Church. I'd never pray out loud in front of anybody. I prayed in my own way, in my own heart. Finally, he's nudging me. Steve, you're going to pray. <laughs> I already did. And we didn't hear you. I said, well, I wasn't talking to you. Oh, okay, well, go ahead, next person. <laughs> they didn't know what to do. I was just being honest. See, if these things aren't characteristic in your life, you're not going to enjoy the security of your salvation. You're going to have doubt on every side. We need to confirm our calling, our election. We don't need to give God information. He knows who he chose. The question is this. The question is, can you enjoy that knowledge? Can you enjoy the knowledge that he chose you, that he saved you? You can as long as you practice these things. You will never stumble into doubt and fear. 
If you're to be comforted, if you're to be encouraged, if you're to be strengthened in this world in which we live, you have to. You have to follow the path of righteousness. You have to make sure that you're doing what God wants you to do as his child. And once you're in that place, nothing else really matters. Nothing else matters. When God calls you to do something and you end up doing what God calls you to do, you have people come along and say, well, you know, you don't do that very well. I don't care. Well, maybe you shouldn't do it that way. I don't care. Why? Because I'm doing what God wants me to do. Don't always do it perfectly. But guess what? I'm trying. Just like you're trying. See, that's what it's all about. Well, let's close in a word of prayer and, and then uh, have an announcement. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have gathered us here today as your children. And Lord, we do thank you that you have given us these, these truths to, to ponder. And Lord, the comfort that your word provides for us that we're not destined to wrath. Lord, we're saved from that through Christ. Praise the Lord. That's just a wonderful promise. And Father, we pray that we would be able to take the message of hope and peace, forgiveness through Christ out of these four walls into a lost and dying world. And speak to them the truth of the gospel, the truth that they need to hear. And so, Lord, we pray that um, this morning, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, you know their heart. We don't judge people that way, but you do. You, you know their heart. You see it clearly. There's always an opportunity for them to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, we all know that we sin in a myriad of ways every day. And what a wonderful message it is to realize that there's forgiveness for that burden of sin that we've been carrying, trying to work it off, trying to do what people think is a good thing to do. No, we just put, need to put our faith, our trust in what Christ has done for us on Calvary. And so, Father, we pray that those who need to would make that commitment, even here this morning or through the live stream as they're listening. But, Father, we would also pray for believers here that we would be encouraged that you would build this up, that we would be uh, able to edify one another in the body of Christ and set aside all the, the petty little issues that we, we make so great in the body of Christ. Help our hearts to melt before you, Lord. Help us to be the church that you desire to be. Help us to be a church that honors and glorifies you and you alone. And Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.